0: Hey, what's up everybody. Welcome to trust and believe I'm your host Sean T. And today we are going to enhance your ability to truly trust and believe in yourself. We have an amazing guest today, and I don't know if you are on TikTok or social media, but what I'm so happy about is the awareness that a lot of people are bringing to ADHD. And what I've learned a lot over the past couple of years, when it comes to ADHD, some people, one, didn't know they had it Two. People were questioning their ability to thrive throughout their day, but Perry Dennis is going to take us on a journey today to help us trust and believe in ourselves through his story and how he can motivate you become the best you that you can be. Get ready to trust and believe. Somebody say, oh hey, yeah! No, no, no. What's up? you better than Oprah, come on y'all! This is Sean T, and it's time
1: to trust and believe. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: Okay, Dr. Perry Mandanis is a medical doctor with over 35 years of experience in helping children and adults improve their symptoms of ADHD. Throughout his career, Dr. Mandanis has faced his own personal challenges. Having suffered a spinal cord injury, he became wheelchair dependent and had to reinvent himself to overcome the challenges of his disability. That experience has informed his practice of mental health and helping others to triumph over their challenges. In addition to his work as a doctor, Dr. Mandanis is also the host of the podcast, "Couch Stories, where he shares inspiring stories of resilience and perseverance with his listeners. Through his platform, he showcases the value of overcoming adversity, demonstrating that sometimes the right story at the right time can change our struggles into amazing gains. I do want to say... Dr. Mandanis, that he did share a story with me that he's a singer. I'm not going to ask <laughs> him to sing. I'm not going to ask him to sing on the podcast, but I will say we actually share that experience. So I'm really happy to know that we have something in common that I'm assuming you're very passionate about, and so is I. And with that said, I want to tell me about your life. I, I just find you to be very interesting and in your, your take on life from what I've read. So I just want to start from the beginning and
1: like... And some songs they say, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my life really did change radically when I fell down a flight of stairs. And the timing of that was crazy. I had finished, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school, seven years of residency, and literally moving my desk into my office before the first day I opened the office I fell down a flight of stairs, broke my back, and had a spinal cord injury and did not get to launch my career. So I suddenly found myself in the hospital for one whole year and literally had to reinvent myself. And so, you know, when I think about myself, I'm really good at reinventing myself. That's something I learned how to do and something I share with others because we have to be flexible and adaptable because you never know what's going to happen.
0: I just want you to maybe inspire people on once they recognize that there needs to be a change or a reinvention of themselves. You know, I think in your case, it was, I need to do this and I have to do this and I need to be inspired to do it. But what about somebody out there that they see that there is a change needed in their lives, but they're very afraid
1: to take that step to create that reinvention? I wish i could say i have an easy answer to that question uh but i don't um in fact uh the way i came about it was i had to go through the dark side uh you know i mentioned i was in the hospital for a year Well, right around the six month mark i began to pay attention to the nurses and i studied when they would come and go from the nursing station i'm a medical doctor So I knew exactly what I needed to steal if I decided I wanted to take my own life. Mm. And just having that thought was like, completely freaked me out. So I mentioned this to my doctor. They realized that I was starting to get depressed and they started me on some medicine. They started me in therapy. And the man that I worked with helped me immensely. And what he said was, I work with people who have had spinal cord injuries. That's all I do. Everybody I meet, Perry, is just like you. And what I learned is they end up in one of two groups. Group one are the people who stay mad, stay angry, stay stuck and miserable about their spinal cord injury because of all the many things that have changed in their life and all the losses. And group two, figure out how to be happy people in wheelchairs. Hmm. Well, that statement, happy people in wheelchairs, really messed with me because it meant I had to radically accept that I was gonna be in a wheelchair. There was no bargaining, there was no more wishing, there was no more hoping, you know, um, radically accept this was my new reality. So for anybody who is experiencing a struggle or a desire for change, sometimes it really starts with just acknowledging that you're struggling and trying your best to switch from problem thinking to solution thinking because when you change how you think you change how you feel and when you change Mm -hmm. how you feel you change how you behave i'm going to give you an amen
0: really quick because that is like so amazing (laughs) because you know it's such a what I like to call a staircase of events that you can create, or you can take action on to make you behave differently. I think the other thing is reading your bio, we have something very similar. I say, you know, turn your struggles into strengths and you say, turn your struggles into gains. So before, again, I know we want to talk more, more about ADHD, at least I do a lot, but I just want to know what did you gain from this you know, what I like to say, unfortunate experience, but it's fortunate enough that you can inspire people. But what did you gain,
1: you know, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I'm a damn good therapist. I think
0: all the way through, (laughs) you know, I really
1: think that (laughs) my spinal cord injury and what I went through, and what I learned helps me to appreciate other people's struggle, not Mm. in an academic way, like a lot of doctors, but in a real, visceral, feel it in your gut kind of way when I hear people's stories of their struggles. I also think it makes me more accessible. You know, um, people know that I get it because I'm sitting there in a wheelchair. So I think it really, what I gained was more skill, more thought, more empathy, and just became a better therapist.
0: I think it's okay. I think a lot of times, like I talk about being positively selfish and people are not, Wanting to say, you know, I'm really great at that, or I need time to myself and my kids, I'm going to get a babysitter tonight because I need to be with my husband or whatever. And it gets a negative connotation because other people look down upon either you needing to give yourself something great, or you just telling yourself that you're great. And I'm like, why do we always have to wait for someone else to cheer us on? Because we are living in our bodies. And so... Why can't we look in the mirror and be like, I'm damn good at what I do. So (laughs) I'm I'm happy you noticed it. I'm happy that people are able to connect with that. And you gave them the permission to believe in themselves in that way. Let's talk ADHD. Sure. Because it's easy to watch a TikTok or Instagram reel or even go and Google and, you know, see symptoms or see things. But I want to get, you know, ADHD 101 in the way that you want to explain it without me asking any direct questions. So let's
1: just umbrella. I want to give you the floor to talk about ADHD. So let's start with what is it, right? ADHD is a neurodivergent condition, which basically you know, is a fancy way of saying people with ADHD's brain developed differently. And it developed differently in a very specific way. Um, inside of our brain are all these bundles that are like highways and information travels down those highways and if those bundles don't develop exactly properly or they develop differently or they develop slowly then that person will have the core symptoms of adhd which include inattention impulsivity and for some people hyperactivity But because it's about four different bundles, not everybody's ADHD is the same. Some people might have more trouble with time management. Other people may have more trouble with motivation. Some people might be inattentive. Other people may have more impulsivity. It really kind of depends on how their brain developed.
0: Hearing brain develop differently, that's the first time I heard that. Because I think initially when people think ADHD they automatically think this person doesn't pay attention or they're hyperactive. And especially when I was a kid in elementary school, when you would hear, you know, a kid had to take medicine because of it, it looked like they just didn't have control, but you didn't hear the science behind it to say, well, this person's brain developed differently. It's kind of similar to, just mental health struggles. If we walk into school or walk into work and we're sniffling or we have a fever, people are immediately like, Oh my gosh, you're sick. Like you don't feel good, but something which sounds like ADHD or mental health struggles, because it's not tangible to the eyes. People right. just are like, Oh, that's just a thing, you know? And so I guess another question I have, that's um, very selfish, which I'm happy to be selfish today. Cause I have, five-year-old kids and they are completely different one of my kids is the wildest person in the world and i love it because i'm wild and my other child is just literally the most logical thinker and as a parent i get nervous with my that what i like to call the wild child that's like me and so i'm always like you know, do I need to ask the doctor? So like, at what age, when it comes to ADHD, do people usually start to see symptoms or activities? And then, you know, how does it progress as people get
1: older? Sure. Actually, that's highly variable. Um, I have talked to moms who knew that their baby was hyperactive before the baby was born. These were mothers who had other babies, and they, they thought there's something different about this pregnancy. sometimes, particularly with boys, because boys often have that hyperactive type, um, you can notice it very, very, very early. Um, it does improve for some people over time because their brain completely finishes developing. Um, by the time you're 23, your brain is not fully developed. Um, so it takes that long to really see you know, improvements. But usually, you know, as a rule of thumb, by the third grade, In the third grade is when you should have seen some symptoms of ADHD if the person's going to have it. And let me just quickly say, there's a very big, big, big exception to this rule. And that is girls and women. Girls and women are still underdiagnosed. And they're underdiagnosed for lots and lots of reasons. One reason is because girls and women often have inattentive type. So they're sitting quietly in the classroom, daydreaming, not paying attention, but because they're not being disruptive, nobody notices. Mm. The other thing that happens, I think culturally, and this is a very sexist part of our culture, I think girls are taught to behave and are told they need to be quiet and demure and comply. And so girls with ADHD often learn how to mask their symptoms so that they can fit in And that they can be accepted. Whereas boys are kind of given a pass, you know, boys have that boys will be boys thing. And when they act up and they're disruptive and hyperactive, nobody freaks out, they kind of like roll with it. So, um, women often don't get diagnosed as children. Uh, the average age of diagnosis for a woman in this country is 37, which is unbelievable and I'll tell you why. One thing you mentioned at the top of the show was social media. Social media has changed everything about people's awareness. And because a lot of social media involves women, um, they're learning and they're putting the pieces together. Um, In my medical practice, I can tell you how it happens that an older woman gets diagnosed. She comes in with her third grader and I'm asking all these questions about his or her behavior. And all of a sudden, bing! this light bulb goes off in the mother's head and she realizes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds a lot like me. And often a parent will find out that they have ADHD too. Wow.
0: I don't know if you've ever experienced this or how much you would know about it. Cause you talked about kids in, you know, third grade and, and parents bringing their kid to the doctor. Have you run into parents who don't want to accept that their kid has a particular like ADHD or, you know, because I think that there might be someone listening where maybe they were told by the doctor that there's nothing wrong with my kid. He just wants to have fun. And she just, she's just like this. How do you get a parent to accept it without being
1: defensive? Cause I think that's a really important thing. You know, all the time that happens and it's embarrassing that it doesn't just happen with parents. There are a whole lot of doctors out there who will dismiss patients and tell them they don't have ADHD because they did well in school or they don't have ADHD because they finished college. None of that's true. All of those are myths. Uh, so what I try to do is without being defensive, do education, talk about brain development, talk about genetics, describe the symptoms in a way that people can appreciate it as an explanation, that ADHD is an explanation for how someone behaves, not just seen as an excuse. Because a lot of people will say ADHD is being used as an excuse for you being lazy or you're not doing your homework or whatever else it is. But while I use those words, lazy and not doing your homework, I wanna point something out. I think what gets in the way of people with ADHD's ability to trust and believe in themselves is all the negative self-talk that they have developed. By the time a kid with ADHD reaches 12 years of age, they have already heard 20,000 negative comments about themselves, 20,000 by the time they're 12. You're so noisy, you're so messy. Why can't you remember to pick up your, you know, it's constant. 20,000 negative comments is going to eat at your self esteem. And when you're a little kid, you believe it's your fault. So hmm. all of that negativity becomes personalized and internalized, and it develops into constant negative self talk, where an adult with ADHD will say things like, I'm so lazy and I'm so stupid. And, you know, I can never be successful, I can never do anything right. When I think about how to help people with ADHD, Sean, medicine is often not the first thing I think of, even though it can be very beneficial. The first thing I think of is helping people learn how to change the way they think about their ADHD and change the way they think about themselves. Because when you shift and you're able to change how you think about yourself, instead of saying, why am I so lazy? You might ask, what's another way that I can do this? Or, you know, It just shifts everything into a solution-focused orientation rather than just focusing on the problem. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: I was watching this YouTube video on this gentleman from the UK who won America's Got Talent. His voice was absolutely incredible. And one of the judges says, what happens if you don't win or what happens if you mess up? And I was floored when he said, I never thought that. I literally was in my car and I started crying because I'm like, I spent so much of my life focusing on the negative because of my negative childhood. And I'm looking at this man, and I'm like, holy crap, like, how amazing is it to be about to step on stage in front of thousands of people and millions of people who are watching, and be able to say, well, I actually never thought about the fact that I wouldn't win, not in a cocky way, but just because of I'm sure he was filled with so much like positivity and love and joy and being able to work through his emotions. So I just like that you brought that up to help parents out there or even you know, when it comes to negative self talk, Yeah, like, one of the best ways to believe in yourself is to talk really great to yourself. And like you said earlier, it will help you
1: behave differently. You know, I think something has happened um, maybe social media too. positivity somehow got tossed out with toxic positivity. And so Mm -hmm. people got so focused on don't have toxic positivity that they stopped being positive. You know, toxic positivity is when everything that happens to you, somehow you see it in a wonderful way. Um, It's that expression that I hate when something bad happens and somebody said, oh, it's okay. It's all good. No, it isn't. (laughs) It is (laughs) not all good. Stop that. But it doesn't mean that you have to continue to suffer. The truth is, pain is going to happen to most of us. Uh, some mm. people experience more pain than others, but it doesn't mean you have to let that pain sit inside of your body and steep like a tea bag until the tea is so strong it makes you sick.
0: Mm.
1: Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. Mm. You should put that on a t-shirt
0: or a sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah. uh, that that's yeah. Misery is optional, but like, so I'm gonna challenge that for a second for sure. someone who says, well, this happened to me and I don't think that way now, but I'm going to just say it as if I were to say, it. I'm like, well, I'm in misery because I was sexually abused from the time I was eight to the time I was 12. And you know, my mother didn't have money. And so I grew up in misery. So why is it an option for me when that's the
1: only thing I've known? It's true. And, you know, um, that's often where people start in therapy. Um, You know, I'm a child psychiatrist. I see a lot of teenagers and they want to throw their parents under the bus or they've had some really, really horribly bad experiences. And often I'll say to them, "Okay, so now we know whose fault it is. What would you like to do next? Because it's true. You know, something (laughs) horrible happened. (laughs) I mean, if you're sexually traumatized, something horrible happened to you, but we cannot go backwards. And so that is what anxiety is. Anxiety is when you take a field trip. You either take a field trip back and re-experience something awful and bring that awfulness into today. Or you take a field trip into the future and imagine something horrible that hasn't happened both of those field trips make you feel like shit now. But now, (laughs) none of those things are happening.
0: Right? That is so powerful. Because that is what anxiety does. Like, it's literally a fantasy. And and most of the time, the anxiety is creating a fantasy of like trauma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you're creating this trauma that doesn't exist. I had a friend, who is a nurse practitioner, and, you know, I say, you know, what do you say to patients who are, like, waiting for test results or they, you know, they're waiting for some sort of diagnosis or they came to the emergency room and, like, how bad is it going to be? And she says, I just tell them, don't panic until you have to. You're panicking about something that doesn't even exist or you didn't find out yet, which is really hard for a brain of a person who, you know, obviously suffers that way, but it definitely... Resonated with me really well as somebody who, you know, definitely has a history of suffering from anxiety sure. and creating yeah. these narratives that literally doesn't exist. Yeah. And my husband would be like, when I would be in those moments of really stressed out, he would be like, What are the facts? Like, right. what facts do you know now?
1: 100%. Anxiety is fiction, and the cure for anxiety is fact every single time, well, and that's not true. Some anxiety is good, you know, like learning when you're cooking not to touch a hot stove, you know, pay attention, (laughs) uh, that kind of thing. You know, some anxiety prepares us and keeps us safe, but most anxiety is fiction and facts will change it. And a lot of anxious people, you know, I bet if I use these two words, you're gonna smile. Most people who have anxiety start lots of their thoughts with the words, what if? (laughs) what if this happens what if that happens what if this happens so what i offer people as a cure for what if are the two words even if even if this bad thing happens i'll figure it out even if this bad illness occurs i still get better so it changes you into a more positive solution-focused orientation instead of this big hypothetical horrible what if that just makes you feel bad
0: yeah because it's literally taking you down a road to destruction
1: right and we think it's making us be safe but it doesn't help you be safe because you probably are preparing for something that's never going to happen or by the time something does happen you prepare for the wrong thing (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: And you wasted time preparing for a test that doesn't even that's not even going to be on your desk. I kind of want to circle back to your ADHD experience. What is your coming of age story when it comes to ADHD?
1: Well, you know, I was an adult before I put the pieces together that my overachievement and perfectionism, etc, was probably masking for inattentive type ADHD. So it wasn't until I was a professional that I figured it out. It was not a part of my childhood. Um, In my childhood, um, I grew up in this Greek-American family where education was the, you know, priority number one, number two, number 50. And I was going to be a good student, period, end of story. So, and I was going to be successful. I didn't figure it out and put the pieces together until much, much later in life. That's my coming out story
0: yeah (laughs) i love that what was your process like once you figured it out did you have any like residuals from when you were younger or were you like i'm just going to be action oriented like how did you i still
1: have residuals come (laughs) on we all have you know i still have that i think what i learned most is i don't have to be perfect you know i'm throwing a dinner party for my Friends, even if it flops, they still love me. You know, it's like I had to get beyond that. I have to be perfect or else bad things will happen because that's a kind of anxiety, right? And what I've really come to and what I talk about myself, what I talk about on my Instagram feed, what I talk about with my patients is more powerful than medicine and any hack or tip that you will hear is learn to practice self compassion. And not just self compassion, when you get it right. Meaning be compassionate toward yourself, when you're having the worst day, when you're doing your poorest job. Think about what you would say to someone else.
0: Yeah, because usually, if someone comes to you for advice, you have Usually the most uplifting or logical answer, but to yourself, you're not really that. (laughs) It doesn't flow off your tongue that easily.
1: So self-compassion is a really powerful, powerful and important practice. It really means having a few phrases in mind that you say to yourself at those times. Be ready. If you notice you're beating yourself up, be ready. Um, Sometimes I tell my patients to use an SOS. You know, what SOS, you know, save our ship or save our soul. Well, I use SOS to stand for this little memory device. The first S stands for stop. The O stands for one thing. What's the one thing that you can say right now to make yourself feel better? And the next S is start over. Stop, Mm. say that one thing and start over. But you kind of have to be prepared. It works better if you know, if you're someone who always said, I'm so lazy, or I'm such I'm so stupid. Um, Instead, if you would have, I graduated from medical school, you know, (laughs) in mind, so that when you're beating yourself up, you have a factual statement to start over with.
0: There are people who hear about mental health that they hear about, oh, you should go get therapy, or seek out therapy. And they think it's kind of like foo-foo. This is my mission of 2023, to talk about mental health so much. And every time I come out of therapy, give a thing that I learned about myself to get people to just be open to the idea. So I'm asking you as a therapist, you know, what are some things we can do to reach these people without being like a
1: missionary? Okay. (laughs) Again, you know, for me, it's a little bit of education, but I like to educate people with stories. I often tell a story about our emotions. We have two kinds of emotions the comfortable emotions and the uncomfortable emotions. Notice I didn't say the good ones and the bad ones. Mm -hmm. I didn't say the right ones and the wrong ones. I said the comfortable ones and the uncomfortable ones, and they're all normal. The reason why a lot of people won't go to therapy or try to call it something negative to try to make an excuse for not going to therapy is because they're afraid that it's going to hurt and my answer is, it is going to hurt. It's going to hurt exactly like soreness when you work out in a gym. I mean, you're in the fitness industry. So when you help somebody the next day, their muscles are going to be sore. And usually people celebrate that soreness because it means they exercise that muscle. That muscle's going to get stronger. So in therapy, when you feel uncomfortable, your therapist or your personal trainer is going to ask you questions and help you do things that are going to make you uncomfortable, but they're not going to ask you to do things that are dangerous or that are harmful any more than your trainer is going to ask you to lift 125 pounds. If you're only ready to lift 15.
0: That's really good. Because (laughs) I think that You're like, I know, you can say, I know Perry, you can
1: say, I know. (laughs) Sean, (laughs) listen, you know, I've been telling these stories a long time, my (laughs) man. So I do know, I do know these stories reach people.
0: Yes. I love that. (laughs) I was thinking of a couple of different things, which is why I had the long pause. I was thinking of I'm training and prepping to be, to do my first physique competition. So it's, you know, I'm, building muscle and, you know, it's, it's a whole process. I have a trainer and a coach, but sometimes, you know, I'm working out with them and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, there is no way there's no way I'm lifting that weight. And then when we get past the number of reps in which I feel like I'm already about to be keeled over and they're like, you got five more in my head, I'm like, who are you talking to? Like what? (laughs) And then I get it. And I finish it, and part of me is like, how did you know I could finish that? I don't ask them that question because they know I can. They didn't do anything to injure me. And I just think that's, like, such a good thing for people out there because, I mean, I know people who are, in in a most respectful way, much older than me, that are still acting out. They're responding to the trauma from a very young age. And they have told me, I don't want to relive that. I would only say, well, you know, it'd be really hard to get better without trying to deal with it. But I think that they do have that fear of thinking it's dangerous. Like, you right. know, when my trainer says I have to lift this, I'm like, okay, like my shoulders not going to pop out from lifting this. They're smarter than that. And it's, you know, for people out there, it's like, yeah, yeah it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's not going to be as dangerous as the thing that got
1: you to this state, you know? Exactly. You know, when you ask someone to get out of their comfort zone, sometimes they'll give you an answer. Like you have to take risks. You have to try new things. When you ask someone to get out of their comfort zone, you're asking them to be uncomfortable. It doesn't mean they have to experience something that is unbearable. It doesn't mean they have to experience something that's dangerous if I do have to sit with some discomfort and when you do it, it's not uncomfortable anymore. So it's really just like physical training in the gym. You know, eventually that weight is not going to make your muscles feel sore and then you'll lift more weight. And so your comfort zone just keeps getting bigger and bigger because you get better and better at learning about your uncomfortable emotions, learning how to manage them. You know, um, I try to help people understand, feel all the feelings, including the uncomfortable ones, but the uncomfortable ones are the ones that require some skill. You know, nobody rejects their comfort. Well, not some people, but most people don't reject their comfortable feelings. So it's the uncomfortable feelings that take some skill and you have to feel them first and then move on something you said
0: which is a good thing for people to hear if they are having the fear because of the words get uncomfortable I think it's just saying we'll grow your comfort zone yeah you know it's just I think that's it it's just okay it's it's even like you like six months into your experience of being in the hospital you said there's two kinds of people people who you know, kind of thrive in it and people who kind of stay in that space. Is people who are thriving in it and that life change is growing their comfort zone. Totally. Because it's really, as I think about it and process it, it's really the way forward, literally. Exactly.
1: Literally. And, like, and you know, the thing is though, you don't, a lot of people reject therapy because they say, well, my life isn't that bad or my circumstances aren't as bad as someone else's. And, you know, what, what I say to them is, have you ever noticed how many coaches Olympic athletes travel with? Why does an Olympic athlete who arguably is the best in the world at their sport, why do they need a bus full of coaches? (laughs) Because those people are there to help them get just a little bit better. Just a little something new that they can do. And so sometimes if you have an issue in your life, it doesn't have to be as bad as someone else's. It may not be trauma, but you could still talk it through with a therapist who can show ways to improve it. Hold up.
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When people who are either starting out their fitness journey or they want to start out their fitness journey or they aren't doing any fitness at all, and then you offer them like hey come work out with me or come to," the, and they're like oh it's easy for you and i'm like it's hard for me every day but the risk not the risk but the result of the work is the joy and that's the joy you see and you can too all right so i think i have two more things if that's okay sure what are the things you wish everybody knew but maybe don't yet to help people with ADHD, trust and believe in themselves. That's my second to last question. Cause I just think it's like so powerful.
1: First of all, I wish people would just accept that ADHD is real. This may be unpopular for me to say out loud in the neurodivergent community, but ADHD stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And the neurodivergent community is trying to get rid of the word disorder to turn ADHD into a superpower. That's all well and good on social media, but I know that there are a lot of people who are not on social media who have become suicidal. People with ADHD have a six times greater chance of taking their own life than someone else, who have developed chemical addictions, 10 times greater, who have dropped out of school two times more often, who have gotten divorced four times more often. So ADHD is very disabling for some people. Um, and so when I hear people go, well, it's just that my brain is different. Yes, it's true, but it's not different like brown eyes are different from blue eyes, it's more like different from normal vision and nearsightedness. And thankfully we can put our glasses on and fix nearsightedness. So you don't have to continue to be nearsighted um you can learn to see differently you can learn to see a new way and here's what happens with people with adhd they develop some superpowers adhd itself i i will never call a superpower but what happens is they develop superpowers so they are very resilient people because they have been knocked down so many times and they have learned how to get back up i think you develop superpowers because you do the work absolutely that's right you know when when I first had my spinal cord injury and I was in a spinal cord injury hospital, they put all the people who are new to being in a wheelchair in group therapy together. And one of the first things the group ther- the group therapist said to us was, if you are not a flexible and adaptable person before now, today would be a good day to develop those skills. Hmm. And so anytime you are born with something that's different that will challenge you in some way, or something happens to you that's going to challenge you in some way. Being flexible and adaptable is the way through. I'm just like sitting in that for a second.
0: My last question, unfortunately, I feel like I can talk to you for an entire another hour. How can people find you? And do you do like online therapy for people who may want to reach out to you or
1: you know i get that a lot i don't do any online therapy because medical doctors are held to a different standard in terms of malpractice insurance and medical licensing so i can only see people if they're in the connecticut area so anybody from massachusetts connecticut rhode island they do drive in to see me what I do offer online is coaching, very specific ADHD coaching where we talk about your ADHD and what your goals are and what your struggles are and what your talents are and leverage them to help you meet your objectives and your goals. So I do a lot of online coaching. People can find me on Instagram at perry, like perry Ellis, dot Mandanis, dot
0: Thank you so much this was wonderful and positively selfish for me it was very wonderful i loved being able to process things as you were speaking and really relating it to my own life and i think i say that because a lot of people you know i'm on social media and again social media is a snapshot into people's lives you know i think my podcast is a is a better place for people to get to know me because i get to mm-hmm. Be moved and conversate and share a little bit more that's deeper so people can obviously get that but I think that if you're just watching people on social media even if they do have ADHD or they're struggling with something a lot of times it's turned into like you said it's turned into like this is a superpower and it's not and we need to allow people to to really feel those emotions so that they can feel the emotions and not feel less than because other people out there are making it like it's so easy to overcome this and really celebrate the work that people are doing so I just know that people hearing your personal stories through here and obviously being able to allow me to talk about some of my struggles as well they will be moved and motivated so thank you so much for your time
1: thank you for having me on Sean and for giving me the time to spotlight ADHD with you thanks thank you